he stood upright and began to walk. Unlike these bozos on TV and they get you out of the wheelchair and the guy starts walking and then slowly his legs get strong. No, immediately. And if you don't get up and most of it's rigged, the problem is not the faith healer, it's your faith. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of Romans chapter 5, and today we look at verses 6 to 11. In our previous study, Pastor Brogy demonstrated through the Scriptures how God loves us through the tribulations He allows to come into our lives for our growth and for His glory. Today, we look at how the Apostle Paul demonstrated from history the fact that God really does love us. Our message is entitled, Secure in the Love of God. Take your Bibles with you this morning. Turn to the book of Romans chapter 5. We're studying Paul's epistle to the Romans. We've been in it for almost a year now, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're working our way through it. Today, we're in the fifth chapter. And as you can see in the note-taking outline... The message this morning deals with secure in the love of God. I wanted to speak about our security in God's love. In the late 1800s, Queen Victoria reigned over Great Britain. And on one occasion, she attended a service in St. Paul's Cathedral. And she listened to a sermon that caught her attention. And after the service, she asked the minister, can one be absolutely sure of their eternal safety? And he responded to her by saying, there's no way that I know that anyone can know for sure that if they die, they would go to heaven. And the incident made it into the court news and it caught the attention of another pastor by the name of John Townsend. And he wrote this letter to the queen. He said to her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of your most humble subjects with trembling hands but heart-filled love and because I know that we can be absolutely sure of our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare for us, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of Scripture. John 3.16, Romans 10.9 and 10. I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. And he gathered a number of pastors together, and they began to pray for their beloved queen. And two weeks later, he received this note. To John Townsend, I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I now believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you one day in that place he has prepared for us in heaven, Victoria. Now, after Queen Victoria was converted to Jesus Christ, after she had come to this assurance that she knew heaven was her home based on the finished work of Christ alone, she carried with her a little booklet by the title of Safety, Certainty, and Enjoyment. It's a fascinating little read, and she would give it repeatedly to people that she would meet. And that's precisely what our text deals with today, the security the certainty, and the enjoyment that we can have in Jesus Christ. I hope you found the passage by now. 
Romans chapter 5, we want to begin reading in verse 6 where we left off last time. Follow along. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we're enemies, we're reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, if you've been with us in our study of Romans, we see, we've learned that there are three major divisions to this great letter. In chapters 1 through 8, there is the national section, or excuse me, the doctrinal section where God's righteousness is revealed. In chapters 9 through 11, we find God's righteousness vindicated. So first, He reveals His righteousness. He shows that He is a holy God, that He is a just God, and as a holy and as a just God, man is worthy of condemnation. But His righteousness is also vindicated and proved in that he demonstrates that that righteousness and holiness can be dealt with through the demonstration of the cross. When you come to chapters 9 through 11, we find God's righteousness further uh, vindicated in the doctrine of Israel. And in that section, if you remember, he deals with this truth that the nation of Israel are his people and the promises he made to them will indeed be kept. Go back to the prior slide, if you will. We're still on it. And then in chapters 12 through 16, he deals with God's righteousness as it is applied. So you have the doctrinal section. It deals with three great doctrines. You have the national section. It deals with three great truths. And then you have the applicational section that in turn deals with three truths. Each section deals with three truths. Now, here in the doctrinal section, if you'll bring up the next slide, you can see he deals with three doctrines. First, the doctrine of condemnation that there is none righteous, no, not one. Whether you are religious or a hardcore pagan, we are all equally lost in the sight of God Almighty. Then he moves to the doctrine of justification. That's where we are this morning. How is it that God can make people who are worthy of his wrath forgiven? And then when we come to chapters 6 through 8, he will deal with the doctrine of sanctification. That once you are declared righteous in his sight, how does God in practice make you righteous? How does he, in your experience, work that out? And Romans 6 through 8 is a section of Romans we do not want to miss. So, we are in the section that deals with doctrines, and we're dealing with the doctrine of justification. Now, that's the broad context. Let's zoom in to the immediate context. Notice the very first word of chapter 5. It's the word therefore. Paul, having just explained man's sinful heart and his need for redemption, in chapter 3 he said we're not saved by works, we're not saved by ritual, we're not saved by ancestry, we're not saved by anything we do, but by the grace of God alone. In chapter 4 he illustrates that with Abraham and he gives us a biography of justification not just to inform us of Abraham as the father of the faithful, but to apply it to us. 
And so when you step into the fifth chapter, he's applying the doctrine of justification to our life. And so he says here in verse 1, therefore, in other words, in light of what I've just explained, in light of what we have just explored, this is what I want you to experience. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important that we walk into the context of 6 through 11, or you're going to miss the powerful argument that is here. So I'm going to take a moment, just a brief moment to review. I preached two hours on this. I'll take the next 10 minutes to review. He deals with the peace with God, not peace of God. The peace of God is a subjective feeling. It refers to a state of mind. Paul deals with that in his letter to the church at Philippi when he says, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God. Again, that's a state of mind. The peace of God, which goes beyond all human comprehension, will guard, it will garrison, it will protect you in Christ Jesus. But 5.1 is dealing with peace with God. Why? Because from God's perspective, before we're saved, we are at war with God. When we come to verse 10 this morning, he will describe us in our pre-conversion state as enemies. But, verse 2 says, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, and that has brought us into an introduction with God. And we studied this word introduction. Outside of the Bible, it's used of someone who's brought into the presence of a king. In the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of it, it's used of someone who's brought into the presence of God. But we saw how coming into the presence of God under the old deal, under the old covenant, was very difficult. And only one person once a year for a very brief period of time could come into the Holy of Holies. But under the new promise, the new covenant, the new testament, for that's what the word testament means, we have an introduction into God's presence and we stand in this grace. It's an amazing truth. We have a new status before God through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so he says we exalt, not exalt. Exalt means to lift up. To exalt means to rejoice. You could translate it, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And we saw that this word hope is unlike our English word hope. We say, I hope the rain quits. I hope my suit still fits. I hope I get a raise. No, the word that's used in the original has a lot more steel and concrete to it. It doesn't speak like in English of wishful desire. It speaks of something that is sure and certain that definitely will take place in the future. So here in verses 1 and 2, Paul has been describing our standing, our new position in Christ, that the war is over, that we are no longer under the wrath of God, but we've come to have favor with God. We have access. But he's going to move here for just a moment into our state, and there's a difference. Our standing is eternal, it's permanent, it's immutable, it's unchanging, it's guaranteed by the Word of God. But our state can change, and it largely changes based on decisions that we make and how we respond to God's grace. Notice verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. 
not only do we exalt in this guaranteed future hope that God has for us, and he's not done describing that. He's going to pick it up in verses 9 through 11. But we also rejoice in our tribulations. Some of your translations say our sufferings. But the New American Standard in the King James precisely says tribulations. And that's good. Because while all suffering is tribulation, not all tribulation is suffering. We tend like with trials and tribulations, at least in the English language, to bleed the two thoughts together. And so we speak of a person's trials and tribulations. And it is true that all tribulations are trials, but not all trials are tribulations. We studied that. That the word tribulation in every single instance outside of this chapter refers to the pressure of an ungodly world upon the life of a believer. We recently had a... Um, a time in our Wednesday night service where our, our associate pastor asked anyone if they had a promise that they were claiming. And a number of people stood up and they quoted a promise that they were claiming. No one claimed this promise. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. If you choose to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. And so the Lord Jesus, speaking of tribulation, we're in the last days. We have been since the day of Pentecost, but now we are moving into the last of the last days. No man knows the day or the hour, but Jesus gave us the marks and the characteristics of what the end of the age would look like. And if you know your Bible, we are in those days. The very last of those last days are called the great tribulation. And of those days, Jesus said, for those days, will be a time of tribulation. Same word is here in Romans. Philipsis. Will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will. The coming seven-year tribulation will be unsurpassed in all of human history. Man knows nothing of a 9-11 experience. They haven't seen anything yet. John wrote in the Revelation. These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. Same word. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus said in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation. Philipsis. He's not talking about trials. He's talking about persecution. But be of good cheer. Take courage. I've overcome the world. Paul said this to the church in Lystra. Through many tribulations. Same word. We must enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And not only this, he says, but we exult in our tribulations. What an incredible statement. Paul says we rejoice in our tribulations. He doesn't say we rejoice in spite of our tribulations, but we rejoice in or for our tribulations. How so? Knowing, he says, that tribulation brings about perseverance. And we underscore the importance of this word knowing. There's something you must know. It's the same thing that James says in reference to trial. You want your trial to be an experience that you can consider joy, then there's something you have to know about trials. That God uses them for a purpose. Same is true with tribulation. For the child of God, nothing is wasted. God uses it all to make us more like Christ. And so he says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. 
Perseverance is a word that describes endurance. It, it's really a, it's a picture of steel being put in your spiritual spine. Standing up and living and enduring for Christ no matter how bad it is, no matter what. And tribulation strengthens that. Tribulation brings about perseverance. And what does perseverance bring about? Proven character. And we saw that this word for proven was used of a goldsmith who would take the metal and get it so hot that he would just skim the slag off the top. And what was left was pure, undefiled gold. And he's saying that's what God does with tribulation as he does with trials. He uses it for good to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. You say, how does it give you hope? Because you see God at work in your life. That God's committed to you. That God's moving on your life. That he's shaping you and making you more like his son. And that builds hope in the heart. Now, it is true that sometimes Christians don't respond properly to tribulation. When someone persecutes them down at the office and gives them a hard time or mocks them or ostracizes them, sometimes they, it results in frustration or failure or bitterness or resentment. But if we respond properly, God uses it. Now, I hope you saw there's a circle here. In verse 2, it starts with hope. In verse 4, it ends with hope. In verse 2, he says, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. That is, we, we rejoice in the promise that God is going to make us more like himself. And so when tribulation comes along, it brings about perseverance. It brings about proven character. And that gives us hope of the coming glory of God. That God who began this process is going to complete it. That he's committed to us. And so verse 5 begins, and hope does not disappoint. How do you know? How do you know hope doesn't disappoint? How do we know this isn't just wishful, positive thinking? Two reasons. Number one, Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. This is the Word of God. But number two, Paul says, because experience tells you. And hope does not disappoint. And why not? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Now, if you've never been born again, if you've never had a birth from above... Verse 5 will never make any sense to you. Now, some folks have had an encounter with the Spirit of God. They've sensed His joy. They've sensed His blessing. They've sensed His conviction because He comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And sometimes they confuse that with conversion. He is speaking here of men and women and boys and girls who have been saved, born again. And if you want to go to heaven, it's, you have to be born twice, Jesus said, to enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about God, the Holy Spirit, coming to live inside of you, where you've become a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the promised helper, has been poured out into your hearts. Now, this is the very first mention of God, the Holy Spirit, in the letter to the Romans. And he's going to mention him time and time and time and time again, like he does in no other of his other epistles. But there's an assumption here, which he will affirm and underline in Romans 8, that if you've been saved, you've been regenerated. You've become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, if you've never had this second birth, then you really don't know what Paul's talking about. But I hope before you leave today, you'll have the second birth. You can. 
as we will see before we are finished. So hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. Now, that's the inner proof, but he's not done. He's going to say, listen, not only can you rejoice in suffering and tribulation when it comes upon your life because you know God loves you experientially, subjectively, through the Holy Spirit, his love that has been poured out and overflowed in your heart, he's also going to remind us historically, objectively, that you can rejoice in your tribulation because of something that God did in the past through the cross. And so what we're looking at today is the securing love of God, that God's love doesn't change. That when he said to the nation of Israel, I will love you with an everlasting love, he meant just that. That he's not done with the nation of Israel. That's the theme of 9 through 11. And he's going to begin to affirm it, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile, that God's love is unchanging, even in the midst of tribulation. And so to help us to underscore the securing nature of God's love, he's going to define it in three aspects. If you're taking notes, first, the properties of God's love. The properties of God's love. Now, he reminds us how different God's love is from our love. And in order to emphasize the properties of God's love, he shows how unlovable we are. Point A here in your outline, God loved us when we were helpless. God loved us when we were helpless. Notice how verse 6 begins. For while we were still helpless. Now you see that little word for in English, we call it a connective conjunction. It connects the previous verse with this verse. And there's a number of little Greek words that are translated for in our English Bibles. Um, most literal translations, they want to do a word-for-word -word correspondence. And so they take the original language and then the receptor language, in this case English, they take the one little word Greek and they translate it for. But not all fours in the Greek New Testament mean the same thing. Sometimes they mean because, but that's not the for that he uses here. In fact, some translations will translate the word for because. But to be consistent, the New American Standard always translates it for. And then context helps you to understand what kind of for he's saying. This is what we call an explanatory for. He's saying, in other words, let me explain further. Let me, let me have your ears. Let me to help you to understand how great this love is that God has for you. For while we're still helpless. Now the word can be translated in a number of different ways. But it refers to someone who's powerless. In the physical realm, it's used in the New Testament of disease and of sickness. So in Acts 28.9, it says the people on the island who had diseases, same word, were coming to him and getting cured. In the economic realm, it's used of someone who's in poverty, someone who's impoverished. And so Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak, the helpless. Same word, the impoverished. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. But in the spiritual realm, it's used in the New Testament of our bankruptcy. Remember in Acts 3, Peter and John go into the temple, 
And they find a man there who's begging. He's lame, the Bible says. He's paralyzed since birth. And so his friends undoubtedly carried him there every day. And what a choice place to beg. It's a high traffic area. And you're in an area where people might be more congenial and more receptive to give because these are people who feared God. And so Peter and John walk by and he, he reaches out and begs for money. And if you remember, Peter said, silver and gold I have not, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And the Bible says <clears throat> he seized them by the right hand, he raised them up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And then the Bible says with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. Unlike these bozos on TV and they get you out of the wheelchair and the guy starts walking and then slowly his legs get strong. No, immediately. And if you don't get up and most of it's rigged, the problem is not the faith healer, it's your faith. Please understand, it had nothing to do with this man's faith. The reality is he's an unbeliever. And so he stood up and he began to leap and to walk and he entered the temple walking and leaping and praising God, the text said, the first Pentecostal recorded in all the Bible. It's a real miracle done by one of the apostles. This man was Athanasius. He was helpless. He was bankrupt. And God uses that in Acts 3 as an illustration to show what we are like spiritually. We are bankrupt. We are helpless. When God looks at the people of this world, when God looked at you to save you, He didn't say, well, you know, you're a man or a woman of faith. you got a little faith. You're savable. The fact is you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead men have no faith. If you ever got any faith, it was because God took the initiative with you. And faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. God didn't look at you and say, well, you know, you, he's a pretty good guy. I think he's savable. No, God says we are desperately wicked. There's none who seeks God. In God's economy, we are helpless. We are powerless. We are slaves to the evil one. And God has to come and release us. And so some translations say, like the King James, we were without strength. A beautiful picture. The Apostle Paul told us that God loved us while we were helpless, when we were without strength. And that's what he'll do for you if you've not yet trusted in him for salvation. If you'd like more information on how to have the assurance of salvation, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and click on the icon that reads, Would you like God as your friend? In this one-hour presentation, Dr. Brogy explains why every man, woman, and child comes into this world spiritually separated from God and how we can restore a right relationship with Him. And for a copy of today's study, Secure in the Love of God, use the Search the Scriptures app available through the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. You can also listen or download it from our website, searchthescriptures.org, or get a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 
and requesting program ROM23. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at being secure in the love of God. Join us then as we search the scriptures.